Welcome and good morning, everyone. For those of you that are worshiping with us here in Mount Pleasant, those of you that are joining us in Alma or online, we are so glad that you are here with us. Uh, My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Community Church. And this morning, we're continuing uh, our summer series where we're looking at the life of Moses. Uh, And we're reaching a significant turning point today. You see, up to this point, we've been introduced to the person of Moses. We've seen his childhood, his a bit unusual upbringing, uh, and watched as he was used by God to bring deliverance to the people of Israel who'd been enslaved in Egypt. But this week, uh, we're going to be taking a turn from deliverance into the wilderness. Because God is taking the people into the wilderness, and it's going to be an ongoing theme for the next 40 years of Moses' life, is wandering in the desert. And specifically, we're going to look at two stories that share a common phrase that if you were just kind of casually reading through the book of Exodus, you might actually miss it. And so if you've got your Bible with you or you've got your Bible app, I'd encourage you to open that up to chapter 15 and 16 of Exodus. Maybe stick your finger in between those two chapters because we're going to be spending a bit of time there this morning. And I want to give us a bit of a synopsis of what's going to be happening as we look through the end of chapter 15 and and, uh, book 16, chapter 16 this morning. So God is taking uh, the people, through Moses' leadership, away from the Red Sea. So last week we just looked at how they crossed through the Red Sea. Uh, The people were freed from the army of Egypt by God destroying that army. And, And God's now taking them away from the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And it ends up being about three days of travel before they make their next stopover. Uh, And they come through this dry and arid desert, and they find out, as you do in a desert, they're getting thirsty. And so the people start complaining to Moses. Moses, you brought us out of Egypt, and now we're going to die in the desert for lack of water? And so Moses cries out to the Lord, uh, and he leads them to this place where there's water. But when they sample the water, they find out, Actually, it's no good to drink. It's bitter. So Moses prays to the Lord, and God shows him a stick or a piece of a tree to throw in the water, and it supernaturally makes the water drinkable again. And so they leave that place after a while, which they later called Merah, which meant bitter, uh, and they go to another place called Elam. And compared to Merah with its bitter water, Elam is like an oasis. It's got palm trees, it's got springs of water, and it's enough water to supply the multitudes You remember, this is a group of maybe somewhere around 2 million people that are traveling through the desert. And so Elam is like a resort compared to the desert. But after a short stop over there, again, God, through Moses, he leads them away from Elam and out into the wilderness again. And at this point, they've been out of Egypt for about two months, and they start to realize they've got another problem. All of the stores, all the supplies that they brought with them out of Egypt are running out. So they're getting hungry, and so they start to complain again. But this time, it's not just about or to Moses. They're not complaining to Moses. They're actually complaining about Moses. And so again, Moses prays to God, and God hears them, and he says, I'm going to provide for you. And so he sends a flock of quail large enough to feed two million people into their camp. And then God begins what is a miraculous provision for six days out of every seven for 40 years by sending manna, bread, from heaven into their camp every day. And right in the middle of both of these stories of God's provision, of his faithfulness to them, is a a challenging little idea, 
And it's basically this phrase that the Lord put them to the test. We see it in chapter 15, it's in verse 25, and in 16, it's in verse 4. And it's not exactly those words, but it's the same idea that, that God is putting his people to the test. And for me, it's a bit of a challenging idea to get my head around. God would take his chosen people out of slavery, out of bondage, who he's promised a good land to, and take them into the desert and puts them to the test. And I think the reason I struggle with this the most is because if God would do that to his chosen people, then naturally, by extension, he could do it to me and to you. And who really likes to be tested among us? I certainly don't. And so we're really going to lean into this idea of the Lord tested us today. And I want to give you what I'm calling a three, three, and three on testing. Okay, you ready for this? If you've got notes, this is a good time to get your your outline ready. Uh, I want to talk about three things that look and feel like testing, but aren't. Three things that God wants to do through testing in us and to us. And three ways that we need to respond when we find ourselves in a testing season. So you ready for this? Wow. Apparently, I have had much more coffee than all of the rest of you this morning. So let's get into the first three. So when we think that we're testing, being tested by the Lord, I know I always look at that through the lens of difficulty, right? Through hardship, through trial, through pain. And that's just my default lens. God can test us in lots of other ways, but that's the way that I go in my mind. But there are several reasons and occasions where we might find ourselves in challenging situations, in times of trial, that actually have nothing to do with the test from the Lord. And there's three of them that I want us to understand that aren't testing but might feel like it. And the first one is this. It's temptation. So we're all on the same page, and so we're perfectly clear. There is an enemy of God and of God's people. And his sole desire is to destroy the work of God in this world. This enemy is actively seeking to bring destruction and strife and dissatisfaction and shame and ruin to your life and mine. And the enemy will bring us times of trial and pain and hurt that might look and feel similar to a test from the Lord, but it's not. It's actually an enticement away from the path that God has you on. It's an enticement away from relationship. It's actually just a drawing you out into sin. And temptation can be found in difficulty, just like a trial or a test can, But the the difference between the two is that the heart of the Father in testing us is actually to prove us worthy of the calling of Christ. It's God wants to find out if we're the people that he wants us to be, that he's created us to be, that the people that can inhabit the kingdom that he wants to set up on this earth and in heaven. But when the enemy sends temptation, it's the exact opposite of that. The heart of the enemy is for destruction. And so we have to understand that though we might feel similar, it might look similar, it might come through hardship, that there's a big difference between a testing time and temptation. Second one is this. It's the consequences of our own actions. We can find difficulty in our life just because of how we live. Some of these things are genuinely sin and disobedience, but sometimes it's just a bad choice. It may not necessarily be morally wrong, it might not be sin, but it's just a bad choice and it causes us pain. Uh, I'm a huge finance and money nerd. Anybody that knows me knows this. Uh, I get it honestly from my father. Um, But I love Dave Ramsey and one of my favorite things that he says about money is this, 
Uh, he says, I, when I do something stupid, talking about himself, with my money, and I lose it, I call that paying the stupid tax. I have paid so much stupid tax that I am now an expert. But here's the thing. We can pay the stupid tax in lots of other reason, regions of our life. It's not just about our finances and our money that we can make bad decisions. Because we have free will, we have the capacity to make choices that are not good for us. And they're not God's best for us. We can get into toxic relationships. We can make just poor life decisions. We can exercise bad judgment. Uh, we can have a lack of personal discipline. All of these things can still cause us hardship and pain and testing and trial uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord is sending us a test. Third and final thing that I want us to be aware of this morning is that there is just a problem of brokenness and sin in the world. So it's not necessarily a test from the Lord. It's not a temptation from the enemy. And we haven't done anything of our own accord uh, that causes us hardship. But there is just a brokenness in this world that sin is still rampant, disparity and destruction still exist, and there, we're just not completely independent from the consequences of the fall of man on the earth itself and on other people. Other people can do stupid things and can be sinful, and it has impacts on us. And it can still hurt us. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord is testing us, though. We have all these instances of things that can go wrong in life that may look and feel like a test, but it's not. So now that we've got a bit of context on how to discern what looks like testing but maybe isn't, uh, let's get into three things that God wants to do in and through uh, in our lives when he wants to test us. And what we're going to do is we're going to use Moses and the people of Israel a bit as our guide in Exodus 15 and 16. So the first thing is this. God uses testing to show us our weaknesses and our need. If you look at Exodus chapter 15 uh, in verse 22, it says, for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Merah, they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter, which is why they called the place Merah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Similar story, chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. The whole Israelite community set off from Elam, and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. So what do we see happening here? The Lord, in both of these stories, he's using Moses to take the people away from water, from the source of life. In the desert, water is life. He's taking them away from security and into a place of scarcity. And he's giving them a situation where they're forced to confront, first, their very tangible physical need. They need water. They need food to survive. But when those needs start to come to the surface, it actually reveals a much deeper spiritual need in their lives. When the comfort and security of Merah and Elam wear off, the people are shown to just have an extreme lack of faith. God exposes their dependence on their physical comforts and even starts to like expose their backwards thinking. Did you see how quickly it happened? They went away from Elam and they're like, oh, Egypt was so great. 
We had all the food we could eat. It was wonderful. How quickly they forgot that they were an enslaved people, that they were subject to abuse, that they were subject to rule, they were mistreated, and then all of a sudden, it gets a little bit hard, and they start to romanticize their slavery. And God uses this testing to expose their backwards ways of thinking. And he does the same thing for us. When, when he puts us in a time of testing, it helps to reveal the places where we're lacking, where we lack faith, where we lack obedience, where we lack Christ-likeness, where we lack character. When God wants to put us to the test, it's to reveal where we need him more. Second thing, God uses testing to reveal himself. So we see again in both chapter 15 and 16 of Exodus, we get this example of God using Moses as a mouthpiece. So he speaks to Moses and Moses speaks to the people because the people are actually afraid of God's voice over them. And what he does is he's letting the people of Israel know who he is. Starting in uh, verse 26 of chapter 15, it says this, He, this is the Lord speaking, said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and you do what is right in his eyes, If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So do you see what's happening here? God is giving them a promise. And if I were the people of God, I would really want to latch onto that promise. I won't send any of the diseases that I I sent on Egypt. And he's referencing the plagues, the boils and the flies and the locusts and all that hardship that they went through. But the promise is conditional. Did you catch that? It comes with a bunch of ifs. If you pay attention, if you follow my decrees, if you listen to my commands, then I won't send any of those things on you. But the very last thing God says to them right there is he gives them his name. And it's one of the many names we see that God revealed to the people as they wander in the wilderness. And this one, he says, I am the Lord who heals you. And this identity of God, it's immutable. It doesn't change. It's not dependent on any condition It is just who he is. And so it shows the people of God how he's going to care for them, how he's going to lead them, and it reveals to them who they're following. Then we see something similar happen in chapter 16. God tells them that he's going to feed them. He's going to send them quail. He's going to give them bread. But then he tells them the why behind his provision for them. And the why is so that they will know that I am the Lord their God. That's in verse 12 of chapter 16. And it's the same phrase that God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh when he sends Moses to Pharaoh. It's the same phrase that he puts at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments a little bit later in the story of the the Israelites wandering, where he puts himself above everything else. So I am the Lord their God. But at this point, the fact that the people of God don't know him boggles my mind. Right? Think about everything we've heard about over the last several weeks. God has brought Moses miraculously to Pharaoh. He's given him power over the natural environment. He's sent plagues. He's changed the weather. He's made water turn into blood. He's walked them across a sea on dry land. He's put a cloud over them during the day. He's led them by fire at night so they can travel. How much more do they need before they know him? And he says he's going to provide for them so that they will know that I am the Lord their God. He sends them into this test because he wants them to know him. 
He uses it as a way to reveal himself to them. It's in the testing that God's character and nature are revealed. And the same is true for us, friends. When we're tested, it's not so God can go out and play gotcha with us, like, oh, gotcha, having a hard time in the testing. He wants to show us his heart. He wants to show us his character in the midst of our own hardships. Third thing God wants to do, he wants to use testing to open us up to his grace. You know, if you've, you've spent any time in the church, uh, grace is one of those words that comes with loads of meanings. And most commonly, we think about God's forgiveness when we mess up as God's grace. And that is such a true meaning of the word. Uh, but in this context, I think a more important one might be that God's grace is living in a state of complete dependence on him. Living in God's grace is living in a state of complete dependence on him. And nowhere is that more necessary and more true than when we're in the wilderness, when we're in the testing. See, when we don't have any other options, that's when we look for God to be near. That's when we look for his hand. Uh, But what we see is that the people of Israel actually don't want to live that life. And I think a lot of times we don't want to live that life either, where all we have is to depend on God. Actually, the people, when they left Egypt, uh, it says several different points later on in the story that they actually wanted to live their own way. They wanted to live like the people that lived around them as they traveled through the wilderness. They wanted to adopt the customs and the cultures of others. They didn't want to live by faith. They didn't want to live in God's grace. And so God has to take them on a journey through the desert, through the wilderness, through the testing And it takes them 40 years to get it right. And even then, it's not perfect. So God leads them out. And when he responds to them uh, as they're being tested, particularly uh, when they fail in the testing, is, is just astounding to me. You would think that, you know, God puts the test before them and they blow it. They complain, they grumble, they they don't live by faith. He would come and correct them. He would come with the stick. Uh, But instead, he responds in that other sense of the word grace. He responds with forgiveness, with mercy. When they complain against him, when they complain against the leaders that he sends them, when they actually want to return to slavery because the wilderness gets too hard, when they reject God's wisdom to try and go their own way, he gives them grace. Exodus chapter 16, verse 9 Moses tells Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite assembly, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. If I'm Moses at that point, I'm like, Ooh, buddy, they are going to get it. You've been complaining about me. I am the one that the Lord sent to lead you. You're going to get it. I'm ready for God to lay the smack down. He's going to set them right. Israel has been giving Moses grief ever since they left Egypt. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We're hot. We're scared. We don't like this road. Why are you taking us here? The only thing missing from the wilderness caravan in the back seat is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they get to that point too later on. If I'm Moses, I am just like, come on, Lord, set them straight. But God responds to them with grace. Chapter 16, verse 12. The Lord says to them, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. 
Tell them, at twilight, I am sending fire. No, at twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning, you'll have bread. This is the heart of our Father. Even when we fail in the testing, he comes and says, yep, here's my grace. This is why testing is different from temptation. It's not God's way of catching us out, trying to get our failure on the record. Because when we come into testing, and particularly when we fail, his response is grace. So now that we've seen that God wants to do stuff in us and to us and through us in testing, let's look at three things that we need to do when we find ourselves there. When we find ourselves in the hard season, how do we respond? First thing is this. We need to call out to God. So Moses is our positive example in both of these stories, right? He's actually facing a test from both sides. He's just as thirsty. He's just as hungry. He's just as tired and fearful of what's happening. But now, he's got an entire nation of people behind him that are like, you're a terrible leader. And for the most part, his response to the people isn't to come after them, for the most part, isn't to be angry with them, he actually turns to the Lord because he saw it proved out in Egypt, right? His people were under slavery. The people of God cry out to the Lord, and he comes and he sends Moses and Aaron to bring them out of slavery. He's seen that God wants to respond to the cry of his people and to bring deliverance, to bring victory for them. And so when the people complain against and to Moses, when they're in hardship, he turns to the Lord, This needs to be our very first step as well. We need to seek the Lord. We need to call on his name. We need to get on our knees, and we need to pray. We need to be ready to hear what God has to say to us. Second thing is this. We need to trust in his provision. This response is very closely related to the first, because if we're going to cry out to God, if we're going to call on him, we need to be ready to trust and listen to what he has to say to us. We need to be ready to live on that grace, that daily dependence on him. Because while they're in the wilderness, God actually forces the people into this pattern of living that requires them to trust him every single day. Let's look at this. Exodus chapter 16, we're starting in verse 13. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. So the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it till morning. However, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. I said he wasn't perfect. Mostly he got it right. Mostly he called out to the Lord. But the people, they're given this bread from heaven every morning when the dew dried. Actually, later on in chapter 16, they describe this manna and what it's like. As They say it tastes like honey and coriander. 
And so it's like this flavor of a sweet kind of citrusy donut. We're going to call it a donut. So basically, God's providing two and a half million Krispy Kremes, lemon-flavored, every morning for the people as they're trekking through the wilderness, as they're wandering. But have you ever gone for like a long hike, like long, like all day long, multiple days long, backpacking trip, bike ride? I've done my fair share of some of these things, and for me, when I finish, the first thing I want to do is eat a ridiculous amount of food and drink all the water in existence. I'm not looking to be rational about what I'm consuming. I'm looking to be like filled back up and replenished. I actually remember this specific time where I was on a multi-day canoeing backpacking trip, like carrying the canoes over land the whole nine yards, and we walked into a campsite late in the evening, and I flopped down, rolled my 45-pound pack off my back, reached in and grabbed the first thing that came out of my food bag and committed to eating it. And what I grabbed was beef jerky and peanut butter. And you might think that those things don't go well together, and they don't. <laughs> but it just illustrates that hungry people do not make rational choices about food. This is not how God instructs the people. He actually tells them, you can't store it up, you can't save it for later, you can't hoard it, you can't stockpile it, you can only take what you need for your family for today. Six days out of seven, manna was provided, and on the sixth day, they took extra for the rest day, the Sabbath day. And during the entire 40 years in the desert, God feeds them just enough for that day. The same has to be true for us, right? When we find ourselves in the testing, we need to trust that our gracious Heavenly Father will give us just what we need for today. It's actually so important in the life of a believer that Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he actually puts in this idea of God, give us our bread for today. He doesn't say give us tomorrow's bread. Give us just what we need for today. And so if it's significant enough for Jesus to teach the disciples that he values it, how much more so for us? So our third and final thing this morning that we need to do in the time of testing is we need to live in obedience and faithfulness. See, what would happen is God would speak to Moses, and Moses would speak to the people, and he would relay God's expectations. He would relay God's commands. He would relay God's laws to them, his commitments to them. And I have to imagine that when God speaks through Moses, his expectation is that the people will do what he said doesn't always work that way, but that's what God is putting out there for them. He actually, in chapter 15, it's so explicitly clear. The Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them. It doesn't get much clearer than that. They actually fail the instruction. They actually fail the ruling, but God put it out there with the hope that they would follow it. He gives them instructions and puts it there for them to listen to. But this is where the testing time can come as a challenge. Because, friends, we have rulings and instructions and wisdom from the Lord. We have God's written word that we have access to. We have the Spirit of God that lives within us for every single person that believes, that speaks to our spirit, that gives us wisdom and instruction. 
He's given us all that we need for life and faithfulness. And he's asking us to be obedient, to be faithful to the things that he's already given us. But when the testing comes, when the challenging season happens, it's easy to get frustrated because it doesn't feel like we have enough to get past the test. It actually can be downright discouraging. I recently was sent a podcast from author and speaker Christine Kane, and she opens the podcast talking about this very subject, that how the frustrating part about a testing season can be what feels like silence. When you're in the middle of the test, sometimes it can feel like God is silent to us. He's not giving us new revelation, new wisdom to make it through the test. But she said something that was so interesting. Think about every classroom you've ever been in. Elementary school, middle school, high school, college, post-college. Every instructional time that you've been a part of. When does the instruction come? The instruction comes in the learning time. But you don't get instruction during the test. You don't get instruction, you don't get answers to the questions that you're being tested on. The purpose of the test is to prove out whether you can apply all that you've been taught up to that point. And so if you fail a test, it doesn't mean life is over. It just means you need to go back and learn the lesson again. But if you move through the test, you get new material to be tested on. But sometimes the silence during the test can be so challenging. With that picture in mind, I believe that God is speaking to us every single day. But specifically, I believe that there are people that are hearing what I'm sharing this morning that God has been speaking to. You know, maybe it's a truth about your identity, about the person you are created to be in Christ, your sonship, your daughtership as a child of the King, your true value and worth. But now you've gone into a season of testing. And the question has to be, are you going to be faithful with the truth that God has spoken over you in the learning season during the test? Or are you going to fall back into the trap of that false identity that God had been trying to break off of you? Or perhaps you're someone that struggles with anxiety or worry, and God has spent time teaching you that he has greater and more perfect and more wonderful plans and control over life and circumstances than you could ever consider or imagine. But now you find yourself in the testing season, and it's getting hard. And the question is, will you be faithful to that daily bread, that peace that God's going to give you for today to last you through the test? Or maybe God's been challenging you about your patterns of devotion. You're listening to his voice, you're reading of his word, you're meditating on his goodness. And he's called you to attend to those things with greater intensity and greater persistence. A greater degree of discipline, but now you've entered a season of the testing. And whereas it was easy before, it feels really hard now. You can't seem to get around to it. And your discipline is slipping. So the question is, will you be faithful to the testing when it's hard, just like you were when it was easy? I want us to understand this morning that when we're in the testing season, that is the time to live with all of the obedience and all of the faithfulness to everything that God has taught us up to this point. 
I know I said it was a three, three, and three, but I want to give us one bonus this morning. Uh, It doesn't actually come from the life of Moses and the story of the people of God, but it would be remiss of me not to include it. Because the challenge that the people of Israel faced in their testing is that they didn't know how it was all going to end. They had the promises of God that he was going to give them a land, that he was going to make them a nation, but they didn't really know what that was going to look like. They didn't really have a picture of what life would look like after that. They didn't have the full story. Because they didn't know that there was going to be one who would come generations after they wandered in the wilderness who would perfectly complete every test that the Lord had put before him. It's put and simply, they didn't know about Jesus. And just as Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus is also the one who perfectly completes every test that the Father put before him. He secured every victory. And so today, if you are someone who claims faith in the Lord, it doesn't mean that life is going to be perfect for you. Actually, Jesus talks a lot about testing that will come. But we can rest in confidence in knowing that he's gone before us and he has passed the most important test of all, giving up of his own life. And if that's not something you've done yet to to put your faith and trust in him, I would just encourage you to cross over that line of faith, to know that in times of testing, when you know how the story ends, when you know that your victory is assured, that the test has been passed by the perfect one who came to save us, it makes it bearable, even in the worst of times. In the book of James, chapter 1, we read this final encouragement, and this is where I'll leave us this morning. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Friends, when we sit under testing, my hope for us is that we do persevere so that we can grow in our maturity, we can grow in likeness to Jesus, so that ultimately we can receive that crown of life. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the examples that you teach us of how to persevere through times of testing, how to respond to you, how to trust in you. God, I pray for every single one of my brothers and sisters who are listening to my voice, that as they go through times of testing, that they would be faithful to you, that you would be gracious to them, and that they would grow in their dependence on you for each and every day. And we pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us, and have a blessed rest of your week. We'll see you next time.